Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Tradition. Why and why not? This is James Conlon. Tradition. Do we observe it? Some of us do. Do we disdain it? Others do. Are we enslaved by it? I hope not. Must we abolish it? I say no. Why do we need it? I'm not sure what the answer is, but based on the evidence, it seems we do. The fact is, we needn't choose between the two. We can have it all. Mahler called tradition schlamperei, laziness, sloppiness. Toscanini, the last bad performance. Just as the prerequisite to become a celebrity is to already be famous, the precondition for observing a tradition is that it has always been observed. In other words, there must be a there there. And so, while we wish each other happy holidays and happy new year, let's talk about some of the classical classics of traditional holiday music. I'm going to skip over Christmas carols and the volumes of popular music. After all, we are an opera company, and our bread and butter is classical music. The winter solstice, Yuletide, was celebrated as the reawakening of the sun and its light long before Christianity conquered the European continent. The twelve days of Christmas have Judaic and Teutonic roots, and our notions, those of us in the Northern Hemisphere at least, of wintry, snowy forests extends far backwards into time. Singing carols has its root in pre-Christian Europe, and the word itself meaning a dance with joyful singing. So let's start with three famous, uncontested traditional works with plenty of just that, all closely associated with seasonal expectations. Johannes Sebastian Bach's Christmas Oratorio, George Friedrich Hindel's Messiah, and Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker. Let's start with the Christmas Oratorio. The text is a fusion of paraphrased psalms. Its tone suggests a joy that we celebrate even as its form and counterpoint lend the distance of a third-person narrative and the vast immensity between God and mankind. Shout for joy, exult, rise up, glorify the day, praise what today the highest has done. Abandon hesitation, banish lamentation, begin to sing with rejoicing and exultation, the highest with glorious choirs. 
let us honor the name of our ruler. That joyful opening incorporates singing in a decidedly Teutonic mode. Probably the two most popular seasonal pieces of classical music in American life, which capture the essence of the pre-Christian meaning of carol, are Handel's Oratorio, Messiah, the singing, and Tchaikovsky's ballet, The Nutcracker, the dancing. First, the ballet. When this time of year rolls around, the traditionalist part of me comes to the fore. It's not just that my wife and I took our daughters to see the Nutcracker countless times that makes me want to do it again. It is that the magnificence of Tchaikovsky's music speaks through a clearly secular voice of the beauty and the distilled light of culture. As soon as I hear this, I'm in Tchaikovsky's grasp. Tchaikovsky's ballet, based on a short story by E.T.A. Hoffman and revised by Alexandre Dumas-Père, takes place on Christmas Eve in a well-to-do 19th century European home. The children gather around the Christmas tree. Here is the excitement of the children's anticipation. Christmas, however, is background to the Nutcracker, not its essence. The substance is in the wonderment of Clara's childlike fantasy and the dream world that it reveals. On the other hand, Christmas is the essence of Handel's Messiah, or at least the first of its three parts. In discussing classical music, it is unavoidable to equate religion and Christianity due to the virtual monopoly it held on institutional spirituality until well into the 20th century. Oratorio, the word is derived from Latin meaning place of worship, is with very few exceptions religious. Messiah is specific to the story of Christ's birth, life, death, and resurrection, recounted through texts freely adapted from scriptures. Unlike the Nutcracker, it has no precise environment, but exists in a purely spiritual dimension. Our discussion here is largely devoid of opera and will mostly remain so. More on that to come. Now, that said, opera and oratorio are very similar. Both are large musical forms with solo and ensemble singers and an orchestra. Both genres involve some dramatic narrative recounted or acted out by its singers, often with alternating arias of reflection and recitatives. 
Under the surface you will find, however, that they are two branches of the same tree. An oratorio can be sung in a church or a concert hall, whereas an opera is conceived for theater. Historically, theater and religion, however, made for very uncomfortable bedfellows. Oratorio developed first out of necessity because powerful church authorities prohibited the depiction of religious, biblical, or scriptural stories on the stage. For that reason, the two forms branched out early. The apportionment was quite simple. Oratorio for scriptural stories, an opera was left with Greek and Roman antiquity, hence pre-Christian, or romances, pastorals, and comedies. Handel excelled at both, in my opinion, because he saw the commonality of musical drama in both forms. Messiah's solemn and impressive introduction, written in a minor key, suggests the momentous event that is about to take place. The panorama is expanded, first through the use of scriptures, and second, and more decisively, through the power of music, opening up a vast vision of time and place. Whereas Tchaikovsky creates a fantasy nestled into a scene of a Christmas Eve in an affluent 19th century home, Messiah is an explicit recounting of the scriptural story. Nutcracker associates itself with the observance and celebration of that story, but the Messiah actually tells it to us. Handel narrates with prayerful reflections and choruses of praise and celebration. The vestigial effects of long-past ecclesiastical censorship have kept Christmas and opera largely apart. It's not as if no operas were written, though. Wikipedia lists some 30, including Zarzuelas and Operettas, works by Rimsky-Korsakov and Tchaikovsky, but they have not imposed themselves on tradition. Romantic opera, for instance, has two well-known Christmas scenes, though they, like the Nutcracker, are backgrounds to personal drama. Puccini and Masnet. The first is La Boheme's Christmas Eve in Paris's Latin Quarter, and the second, the final scene of Werther. Puccini's Christmas Eve is pure entertainment and spectacle, and Massenet uses a children's Christmas song as a stark counterpoint to the protagonist's suicide. In the 20th century, Giancarlo Menotti's Amal and the Night Visitors, premiered in 1951, attained great popularity and imposed itself as a children's opera for several decades. Now considered too dated by some, it has fallen into neglect. 
That judgment is perhaps too severe. It was in any case a real Christmas opera. And I particularly like John Adams' El Nino. It has been described as a nativity oratorio and lives in that wonderful zone between opera and oratorio, the beautifully rendered blend of poetry and drama. Its protagonist is the Holy Family, juxtaposing the biblical narrative with contemporary life. In a way, it reminds me of one of my favorite Christmas works, Hector Perlioz's L'Enfance du Christ, The Childhood of Christ. That leads me back to where I want to be, with another hauntingly beautiful 19th century work, Franz Liszt's massive and lengthy oratorio, Christus. And now, at least for those of us in the United States, we leave the safe haven of tradition and investigate just what great Christmas music has been there all along. There is a story, apocryphal perhaps, that Richard Wagner and Liszt were conversing, and that Wagner, ever modest, remarked that they were the two greatest creative geniuses of the 19th century, to which he then added, we could consider Berlioz as well, but let's not tell him. It might go to his head. Tradition in the U.S. rarely hears Berlioz's great Christmas work, and it virtually never hears lists. Like Messiah, Christus is in three parts, the first being devoted to the nativity story and is entitled, like Bach, Christmas Oratorio. Part two later will be After the Epiphany, and part three, The Passion and Resurrection. I have conducted and recorded this work, love it and admire it, but recognize that its length, about three hours, is a problem for modern audiences. I see no reason, however, that it can't be divided into its component parts and performed that way, and that would add, for those whose curiosity leads them beyond the traditional, another rich musical experience at Christmas. Liszt's Christmas Oratorio has five movements, an introduction, a pastoral, and the Angel's Annunciation, an a cappella hymn, Stabat Mater Speciosa, Shepherd's Song at the Manger, and finally, The Three Kings. Christus is written with that characteristic alchemy that typifies Liszt's sacred music. Liturgical modes, Gregorian chant, freely mixed with his rich and forward-looking harmonic invention. Its overriding feeling is one of extraordinary breadth and spiritual tranquility. It is dominated by pastoral beauty, as if Liszt had distilled the imagery of shepherds and sheep, the Lamb of God, and transmuted it into sound, and then spread throughout the length and breadth of the entire oratorio. Both Bach and Handel, on the other hand, chose a particular moment to concentrate on that image. They are both written for the orchestra in the style of a pastoral. Here is the Sinfonia from the Christmas Oratorio. Here is the so-called Pifa from Handel's Messiah.
and Liszt's Pastoral is from the introduction. But Liszt goes much further. In fact, if I were to characterize what makes Christus unique, it is the overwhelming feeling it imparts, one of peace, profound tranquility, both material and spiritually, and its gentleness. The spirit of the peace that Christ brought to the world imbues the entire work, even when the literal text does not address it. It is as if that deep serenity has enveloped the universe, and with it, Liszt's music. He offers us peace, a Christmas gift. Berlioz's L'Enfance de Christ displays many of the same attributes as Christus. In particular, he has portrayed the Holy Family with a very special quality of loving tenderness in a way that has no precedent. His invented scenario has no explicit source in scriptures. Berlioz, as always, has his own take on everything. Instead of the conventions of oratorio, he starts from an interior place and from there constructs form, content, melody, harmony, and rhythm. He ignores inherited forms and infuses dramatic expressivity into his rather original telling of Christ's early years. Essentially based on the second chapter according to Matthew, he freely invents whatever his fancy dictates. What emerges is a charming and sometimes curious collection of scenes. The characters include 
a narrator sung by a tenor similar to Bach's evangelist, a centurion, an officer of the watch named Polydorus, and most unexpectedly, King Herod, who dominates the entire first part of the three-part structure. The first part, therefore, is entitled Herod's Dream. The first scene is invented, a street in Jerusalem, with Roman guards making their nocturnal rounds. There is nothing biblical about this. It is just some imaginative local color. The four-part chorus represents an angelic choir, shepherds, angry inhabitants of the city of Saïs, and, most surprisingly, Hebrew soothsayers, whom Herod has summoned. It only behaves like a standard oratorio ensemble when it prays at the end of the entire work. The second part, named The Flight into Egypt, features the shepherds who sing the seminal three first farewell to the Holy Family as they flee Herod and depart across the desert. From this chorus, which had been written first as a jest, grew the rest of L'Enfance du Christ.
Along the way, on their trip through the desert, the narrator tells us, the tired family rests upon finding an oasis. They continue their journey, and the narrator tells us more about their travails. In the third part, the arrival in the city of Saïs, the chorus briefly impersonates some hostile inhabitants who, as in the story of Bethlehem, refuse lodging to the Holy Family, who are exhausted from their long trek in the desert. <laughs> In this final section, the work will culminate in a resplendent demonstration of hospitality, generosity, and compassion. As in the parable of the Good Samaritan, a person who ordinarily would be considered an enemy of the Hebrews will exemplify the highest commandment to love thy neighbor. An Ishmaelite father, an infidel, in the words of the narrator, comforts the family and takes them in. Like Joseph, he is a carpenter by trade and demonstrates infinite kindness by sharing his home with the Holy Family. They will remain there for a long time until it is safe to return home. 
Berlioz's spiritual message of compassion is placed in the words of the Ishmaelite father. And then a surprise, one characteristic of the composer. The father bids his children to entertain the guests with music, a pretext for Berlioz to include a trio for two flutes and a harp, probably for no other reason than his liking the idea. A trio in three sections. Is it meant, perhaps, to represent the three members of the Holy Family? narrator proclaims, thus it happened that the Savior was saved by an infidel, and that after ten years they returned to the land of their origin, so that the Savior would fulfill his mission of redemption. The chorus, in awed and gentle tones, prays, O my soul, O my heart, be filled with pure and solemn love, that alone can look toward heaven. All in all, it is unlike anything one would expect in 1854. Neither the very imaginative story, written by the composer himself, nor the exquisitely subtle and refined music have an antecedent. His approach is so personal and different, at times irregular or asymmetrical, and always unexpected, that it has inspired both attraction and perplexity since the time of its composition. For those amongst us who are traditionalists, take a chance this holiday season with these two works, which you may not know. I believe you will be amazed and rewarded for your time. And for those who are traditionalists, do the same while you also immerse yourself once again in the beauty of Bach, Handel, and Tchaikovsky. You can be both traditionalist and non-traditionalist, as I am. I intend to listen to all five of these works during the holidays and to draw from each of them what it has to offer. And in the tranquility of my home, Wait out the pandemic in the best way I know, surrounded by music. Be safe, be healthy, happy holidays, happy new year. This is James Conlon. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.